0: Coming up on today's episode of The Real Lives Podcast.
1: It's devastating. And when you put numbers to something, it it makes it so real. But what those numbers don't actually tell us is that we're actually missing out on a huge number. Because as you said, one in three people with dementia are never formally diagnosed. So those numbers actually aren't entirely accurate because there's so many people, maybe hundreds of thousands just in this country who were never diagnosed. I was climbing Mont Blanc shortly after the English Channel and my guide, we were we were roped up to each other. We were only one-on-one one on the point. We hadn't spoken for like six hours and it was summit day. We reached this ice and he turns to me, pulls down his buff and he shouts over the wind. If one of us fall, we can't catch each other. There are always moments in these in these tough moments where you have to ask yourself, why am I really here? And I think my best answer to that question would be the word responsibility. Because on day 10, I woke up with shin splints, a chest infection and a fever and like that everything changed that first five kilometers on day 10 took three hours
0: on today's episode i have on professional explorer louis alexander now louis is the same age as me he's 24 years old but has experienced a hell of a lot for such a young person and having such a short career so far. In the past couple of years, Louis has managed to complete 17 marathons in 17 days. He's managed to swim from Alcatraz. He's managed to complete seven marathons in seven different continents in the most in the seven most remote places on those continents. And that is just among an array of different challenges that Louis has done throughout his career so far. Now in this episode we get into all the logistics behind that, but not just that, we get into the reason why behind why he's doing it. Now Louis is doing this for Alzheimer's Research UK because his granddad sadly suffered with Alzheimer's for 17 years um, before sadly he passed away in 2019. And since then Louis made a promise to help raise awareness and try and find a cure for Alzheimer's disease and dementia as a whole so it's a really interesting conversation that we have, you know, talking all things about high performance psychology, Alzheimer's, dementia, um the list goes on and on louis such a great guy i really appreciate him coming on and giving his insights into what he's done so far and i can't wait to see what the rest of his career uh, has to hold for him now before we get into the episode just remember to like subscribe share the podcast and leave a review on apple and spotify if you could because it means the world and helps me get more and more guests on as we go each week and also you can find louis down in description below so go and support him and also donate to his cause Um, as it's such an amazing one so please 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 go and do that so yeah i hope you enjoy this episode with louis alexander sweet louis really appreciate you coming on the podcast the way i like to start all these ones is i don't like to give an intro of the person i like to just ask them put them on the spot and say who you are tell me who you are and what you do
1: sure my name is louis alexander i'm a 24 year old professional explorer which is a a strange title granted and it's one truthfully many years ago i didn't even know existed but over the last two years been very lucky to doing this full time so climbing mountains taking a few swims most recently running marathons on all seven continents from the deserts to the arctic to the antarctic and very lucky in the process to have raised some really good money for alzheimer's research uk and the f- to support the fight against dementia and then also last month delivering a letter to 10 downing street so incredibly lucky to be doing what i love at a young age it's i think it's a rare thing to to find your purpose let alone have the opportunity to do it so just going for it and very grateful for the opportunities like today to speak to people like yourselves and hopefully share this story too.
0: Yeah, mate, what, what you're doing is absolutely incredible and what you're doing it for is a really great cause um, because, you know, it's it's. I, I, I kind of want to get into that first before we get into what you've done mm. in the process because like I've got some statistics written down here and it's something that I think everyone's aware of Alzheimer's and dementia but I don't feel like anyone is really knowledgeable on the statistics behind it. So like what I've got written down here. So obviously dementia is a form of Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is the broader term for sort of like memory loss and degeneration of or is it the other
1: way around? My I... So yeah. dementia is the umbrella term and Alzheimer's is, is one of the most common types of dementia. So the other types include uh, dementia with Lewy bodies or frontotemporal dementia, you know that there's various. Yeah, so sorry, my bad. But yeah, so in terms of
0: in terms of Alzheimer's itself It was the leading cause of death in 2022, with 65,000 plus deaths in the UK, so 11.4%, which increased by 1% from the year before. And at the minute, there's also 900,000 people living with dementia in the UK, which is expected to rise to 1.6 million by 2040. And a statistic you said, which I found really interesting, was that one in three people go undiagnosed.
1: it's actually making me just give me horrible shivers as you're saying those numbers because it's they're all they're all true and it's it's devastating and when you put numbers to something it, it makes it so real but what those numbers don't actually tell us is that we're actually missing out on a huge number because as you said one in three people with dementia are never formally diagnosed so those numbers actually aren't entirely accurate because there's so many people maybe hundreds of thousands just in this country who are never diagnosed
0: and so, from your time doing the research that you've done into this, into this, you know, the this area, what what is it that's causing this lack of diagnosis within within Alzheimer's and dementia?
1: Well, it's there's 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 so many issues with dementia, and obviously one of them is we've always been so we're searching for a cure, and so many charities and people always talking we're fighting for a cure, and that's hundred percent one thing we've got to do. But the other thing is is as we're talking about is these diagnoses and. The problem is often it's down to funding, but it's also a lack of education. But it's also this this, as you said, this illness is huge. It's it's devastating millions and millions. And we just don't have the power yet to to deal with it. So I don't know the truth of the exact reason why I think there's probably many, many reasons why we're so far behind on it. Um, But it's I think it's important that we do talk about it and highlight it, because if we can diagnose more people, that's what it's all about. We can then get the government's hopefully attention more to to increase those um the the funding for for treatments and for finding a cure because as we found out you know there's been two drugs recently approved in america for uh, dementia they don't fix all types of dementia but they do help with a few uh, types and they found small success rates in two types of dementia which is amazing and we're hearing those could come to the uk in the next one to two years so you know these breakthroughs and this cure is one or two years away so it's it's so close it's on the horizon but without being able to diagnose people properly and accurately and early, it means nothing. Because if we give people the drugs too late and the treatment's too late, then, you know, then it, unfortunately it won't be successful. Yeah. And
0: it's, it's really interesting as well that these statistics are rising. And I think because I, I was doing a bit of research into the area myself and I was aware of it slightly, but the, the correlation with physical activity levels throughout life, I think is a massive thing, and it's something that I like. Even during when when COVID happened, it was something that we didn't push enough. Was people getting out and being more physically active? Like the research with COVID showed that you know people who were they were throwing these death statistics at us, and it was that's all well and good. But when you're not telling us that the people, a lot of the pe- percentages of people who were dying had other comorbidities and were less physically active and things like that, and then with this it's also so physically physical activity there was a research paper that i read where he said physical activity in all stages of life so as a child as you know young adolescent um as a young adult as an older adult is associated with reduced risk of cognitive decline and dementia so keeping stimulated and keeping yourself doing tasks which aren't even necessarily hard it could be going for walks you know we're not talking like going for a run every day and as a society we're just losing that no one people are just stopping doing these basic activities and i think there needs to be a bigger push especially for younger people who are like you know getting into the work in nine to five to be like get out and go for a walk get out and exercise do something if if that makes
1: sense absolutely and i hope that's shifting now post lockdowns and I I think that awareness is and I think actually I can see that awareness shifting on social media a little bit because it's so true especially as you know we're the same age and the younger generations this is something we need to be thinking about and something I often don't see in the dementia world in terms of the supporters and ambassadors and the fundraising is there is that little missing gap from our generation because often it's the generations who you know their partners are affected by dementia maybe they're in their 40s 50s 60s 70s on But actually, it's people in their 20s, we're the ones who need to be leading this fight in many ways, because we're the ones who we've got to look after the generations above us. But we're also fighting now for the generations below us, because this is, as you said, dementia is the biggest killer in the UK. And if we don't do something about it, then that's just going to get worse and worse.
0: Hmm. And this is obviously a very personal, um, it's got a very personal relationship to you, this disease. Um, So obviously this affected your granddad for 17 years and to just take me through that story of like how that affected him and you know what what you experienced as someone looking at from the outside
1: in at the situation. Sure I mean one of the first of the greatest one of my Greatest honours with what I'm doing in my career is I get to talk about my granddad all the time, right? That's, it's so amazing. My granddad was one of my heroes. He was very much an explorer, and adventurer in his own right. His name was Captain Rick Taylor. He served in the British Army for 38 years. He served all around the world. But it was, as you said, his 17-year-long battle against dementia, which sadly ended his life. And when... I found, out, I found out when I was about 18, 19, that his dream and his retirement after the army was to climb a mountain called Kilimanjaro out in Africa. Tallest freestanding mountain in the world, 5,895 metres tall. But sadly, because he was diagnosed with dementia, only 58 years old, he never had the opportunity to go out there. So I decided at 19 I was going to go out there and fulfil his dream for him and hold his name on the flag at the summit. I'm very proud to say I did so. And a few months after returning... He sadly passed away, his 17 year long battle came to an end and I had one of the greatest honours where my nan asked me to deliver the eulogy at his funeral and the truth is in front of family and friends at 19 years old, uh, my granddad's funeral, I didn't know what to say. You know, what do you say when, you know, your hero has lost his life in such a horrible way and everyone in that room had seen that horrible 17 year decline. So I just made a promise and that was to support this fight until the day we find a cure and that promise, you know, was Five years ago now and it's it's led me up mountains and across oceans and and through runs you know I'm not a researcher I'm not a scientist I can't help in that way unfortunately but I found this hopefully unique way where I can use these challenges these adventures to to raise that awareness and to raise donations and I think we've raised you know over 50,000 now which is amazing but as my challenges grow so must my purpose and that was my big slogan last year because if these adventures continue to grow and grow and you know um, more people are getting behind them, supporting, which is amazing. It's time now that the impact grows too. So that led me mm. to 10 Downing Street last month.
0: It's incredible that you found your purpose so young in mm. that, because I feel like a lot of people our age really struggle with purpose. And they like, I've, I for example, I really struggled with purpose and probably mm. till about last year, I was wow. like, I just didn't know what to do. And, you know, to be so driven like you were from 19 years old and now you're a f- like full-time, as you would like, it's crazy to say professional explorer, because I've said to a few people in the build up to this, they're like, professional explorer is that a thing? I'm like, it definitely is a thing. <laughs>
1: like, sure, it's a strange title, and that uh, you get two responses to it when you mention it to someone. Like, either people are really excited about it, or people are a bit sort of thrown off, like, oh, you're just making it up. But yeah, that was a title which you know press and sponsors sort of given me. I didn't know what to go with because I'm not a runner, I'm not a swimmer, I'm not a climber, I'm not focused or or. You know disciplined in a certain sport, and that's never been my goal and my you know my my greatest passion isn't actually the challenges it's this impact behind them so I often work back when I'm planning a project or an expedition I work back so the most recent running project was i it was a global I was fighting for this global course, so I needed a global challenge, and that's how I came up with the seven continents It's not actually about sports so that's why I don't go with the title you yeah, runner or climber or swimmer because that's not me so i've sort of found this word explorer and we're sort of going with it but it's true the purpose is it's a really difficult thing and it's but it's such an amazing thing when you do find it but i owe that to my grandfather you know i went out to kilimanjaro for him and for alzheimer's research uk but It's very true to say I also returned home with something for myself, which was this newfound passion and purpose for adventure because before that I'd never done anything like that. I didn't know I'd even enjoy it. I was going out there just to do one thing for him and come home and and continue with life, whatever that might be. But everything changed with that one mountain and I owe that to my grandfather for inspiring me to take that first step and I also owe it to the people of the the mountain in Africa who, who looked after us and cared for us while we were there.
0: How did you find that experience? been like the first big thing that you'd done in your life, as you say, and you know, then reflecting on that and realizing like I could do
1: more, if that if you get me, absolutely, it it completely changed everything. And I I would actually say that one week on the mountain probably taught me more than one whole year of school or childhood. It was incredible, and it was really tough. First of all, I really struggled, and that's probably why it was so powerful and poignant because I found every single day really tough. On day two I, I had altitude sickness and that just got worse and worse and in reflection then maybe with some naive moments where i should have gone back down like i stopped eating and drinking towards the end of it because there was one rule on the mountain which which we had from our guides was if you're sick you get sent down and na- naive being 19 years old i said well if i'm not eating or drinking i can't be sick so that way they can't send me down It was, you know so naive and and i'm mm-hmm. sure as we get this the more and more things i've done have been so naive Um, Because often when you're in that mode of adventure, and it's something I'm I'm thinking about more now as I'm starting to, you know, grow up through this weird world of adventure, is how sort of invincible you feel when you're on an adventure. You know, it's not real, but you know, you feel like you can beat a mountain or an ocean, whatever it is. But you know, we can't. And sometimes we're just lucky to to let for Mother Nature to let us get past. And, And I was that time, and it was just the most incredible week in many ways of my life. And it's actually still number one, probably out there of what I've ever done because it just was—it just changed everything. It really did. It really did.
0: Mm.
1: That. So, when you came
0: back from Kilimanjaro and you sort of realised that I, I can do, I've got more to do and there's more I want to do. What were those sort of first set, steps that you took in order to make this now full time career that you have?
1: Well, it wasn't a a, a straight step, that's the truth. It came home at 19 and then from then till about 22, I spent about three years just trying to work things out. So I tried different jobs across different industries, trying to pursue different careers. I I knew I didn't want to go to university. It was something that most of my friends had done and it was something my school had always pushed, but I, I knew it wasn't for me. And the truth is I didn't really know what to do. I think I was struggling with that exact word, purpose. I was really struggling with it and I was trying to find it. And I was applying for different things, trying different things. And I was just failing with everything. It was literally three years of failure, not because I was getting fired, but just because I wasn't finding that purpose, that passion. And then there was a bit of a moment in November 2021 after three years of this, where I just sort of realized, gosh, there's only one thing I really love in life. And it's these adventures. And without even realizing in those three years, the only thing that had been succeeding or doing a little bit well was this hobby for adventure was growing and growing. So I'd got into sort of ultra-marathons and climbed a few other mountains and done some little challenges i did like 20 challenges in 2020 at 20 years old like you know set in reflection it's a terrible name you know and you know one of the most important things with a project is actually the name and that was terrible marketing wise but at the time i loved it and i learned so much and covid happened during that time so it was like the most testing thing because everything got cancelled on day one and and all these things happened. And, and without even realizing i was learning how to fundraise more for charity i was learning how to the little social media bits and find a little bit of sponsorship and stuff but at that time it was just purely as a hobby I was going right I'm going to find what career I want to do and what I want to dedicate my life to and then I'm also going to enjoy my other part of my life which is this hobby but actually in November 2021 I realized I only had one thing in life and that was these adventures and my parents bless them I've got the incredible incredible parents and they said Louis you've got you're 22 you've got no children no commitment to a mortgage or anything like that just go for it If you're ever going to have an opportunity this is it and that's what i did and i said well if i need something to launch my career if we're going to call this a career you know it's very hard to say that when you when you don't even know what it's called at the time you know we were still struggling what what, what is this called and then explorer popped up but i said well i need to do two things i need something big to, to start the momentum but i also need something to honor the man who who inspired this all my grandfather so i decided to run 17 marathons in 17 consecutive days in honor of those 17 years he lived with dementia I said, I'll give myself three months to train and do all the press and sponsorship and the logistics behind it. And, and that's what we did. And it was, but if we go back to those three years before I even got to that start line, if we want to call it that, it, those three years were just, you know, up and downs of just trying to work things out. And that purpose was what I was looking for.
0: Yeah. So during that period of looking for different things, was there, was there a time where you, you, you ever thought, oh, I, might, like, I might just go get a job? and this can just sort of take a back seat because it's so easy i feel like now it's so easy to fall back on something and just go for the the job because a job's not easy but it's the easier option because it like it's the income it's stable income it's stable day to day like you know 8 nine to 5 you can work Monday to Friday you've got your weekends you can go on a hike on a weekend it's very easy to get i feel stuck in that and especially when you're like do I take this leap of faith into this or not? I feel like that's probably weighing on your mind. Like, oh, I could just go there, but you really want to go there. Like, was that, or did you ever have moments like that?
1: 100%, it was a complete crossroad. Do I choose a life where I can have a stable career and I can enjoy my adventures on the weekends and hobbies like many do, and many do well, or can I make this, you know, my my life, my career? And of course it wasn't, you know, an easy sort of crossroad, but those three years where I was trying to work things out, you know, I spent a majority of that was during uh, lockdowns and things. So I spent a lot of time with an incredible charity called React. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. Uh, I would definitely say you need to get a few of their a few of their um, responders on your podcast because they have some inspiring stories. But it's a disaster response charity, and, and they go to the heart of of crisis wherever they are and during during lockdowns they were doing some incredible work and I spent a lot of time at like a temporary mortuary working with the fire service and the police there and, and doing some other testing and bits like that and that was quite a defining moment in my life looking back because I spent a lot of time with some incredible people who had found their purpose and they lots of them are veterans or, or ex-servicemen and women and they their purpose was so clear And I could see it because even though they'd left the military after 20 years of service, they were still dedicating themselves in many ways to their country and the public because they were now volunteering their time for free in mortuaries and in some of the most horrible places during lockdown in hospitals and things like that. And that was quite a powerful moment looking back because it made me realise that that purpose is all sometimes we have in life. And and actually, in many ways, when I went to make that decision, it was quite easy in that sense, because it was the only thing I had in life. It was adventure. That was the only thing I I really loved. It was the only thing that that truly inspired me every morning and every night. So it was a hard decision. But in many ways, I think it was hard for the mind, but it was easy for the heart, if if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I really get that because. I, so I find a lot of purpose now in being outdoors. I find so much, per- whether it's like, or being active. Actually, I'd say being active. So it's like, you know, for me, it's hiking, running, climbing, being in the gym, just different, like different things that I do throughout the week. And there was a period where I stopped doing all of them. And Christ, that it does, it does affect you when, you know, like you say that, like, I feel like if I took all these things away from you, the you know these you, you no longer had the ability to you know plan 17 marathons in 17 days or seven marathons across seven continents in the most remote points it's it's interesting to see what how the brain reacts to it because it's like you know if you didn't have that during that time and you were just working these jobs as you were trying to figure it out i almost wonder how you would be now what how different would louis in Twenty twenty four be if he had never even attempted to do these things and just kind of did them on
1: the odd weekend and stuff. Absolutely, and it's it's. I think that actually scares me because I don't know who I'd be or where I'd be. In in some ways, I can kind of see it maybe, um, but it's true, and that's why that first adventure Kilimanjaro it, it completely changed the trajectory of my life because I was going to go into maybe a, a stable career and. And maybe go down the more traditional route, and that's okay. And many people do, and many people enjoy it, and that's wonderful. But for me, I don't think it would have been, it would have worked. And and many people talk about the risks and the dangers of what I'm doing, and and I totally get that, and I totally understand it. But I think the dangers would have been far higher working in a you know in a stable career in in the corporate world. I think that would have been far more scary and dangerous for me, my physical health, my mental health, than what I'm doing now, because I wouldn't have had purpose, and that's what I think things can. go downhill
0: what was the your group of friends like when you were growing up were they like you in terms of they like i i feel like you're very like me in terms of when you were growing up Mm. you almost felt like because i instantly from like i think must have been 11 or 12 i was like i need to be out of the uk i need to go travel i need to do this i need to do that and see i wanted to see different things to what like say my family had seen and I wanted to try, do hard, harder things that people had, than what people had done. And uh, some of my friends were like that, but a lot of them still are like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you yeah. know, they see it as, yeah, it, it's in a funny way because like I, I my, some of my friends around me are very content with their situation and I absolutely love that because I feel like it's good to have people who are quite content with what they have and what they're doing. Um, But also I've surrounded myself a lot more with people who really do, push themselves to the next level because that is very much me and I just want to constantly be pushing to the next level so yeah what were your friends on a similar wavelength to you when you were growing up or was it the
1: same where like you you were
0: kind of the odd one in the group
1: I suppose in some ways yes maybe a little bit no I think it's funny like you probably like yourself so lots of the friends I grew up with they are still my closest friends now and they're the ones I see all the time and they're the ones who who I will go to first of all if I need help for an adventure or something like that, because they might not know about the the mountains or the oceans or anything like that, but more than anything, I trust them because I've known them for 10 plus years and, and, you know, my friends and my family. But I think a few of them actually you know my friend friendship group they're all so varied in the things they do you know whether it's like a watch dealer a professional golfer um, music management everyone does different things so it's quite interesting in that sense and few of them are risk takers a a little bit like me and have maybe broken the mold and i think that that credit actually goes back to to our parents and to to our upbringing because we were encouraged in many ways to go for what we wanted to do whether it was acting or business or music or if you did want to go down you know the the financial corporate route and that's okay if that's really your passion then we'll go for it but you've got to go all in whatever you do give your whole heart to it and i think lots of my friends agree with that but it's yeah it's interesting i never thought about it like that in that sense but i suppose in some ways i have been a little bit of the the odd one out in terms of in terms of really going for for it with uh something quite unique and hopefully maybe that might have encouraged them to 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 chase their dreams whatever they may be
0: just jumping in midway through this podcast to uh, ask if you could leave a review if you're listening on Apple or Spotify and also to subscribe to the channel on YouTube um, and like and leave a comment um, because if you've gotten this far, you clearly like it and you're interested. So I would really appreciate it. Now back to the regular scheduling. Mm. Yeah, because it is. I used to sort of struggle with it in a way because it was, I felt like an odd one out, but in a bad way. Like, why do I think? like this why why can I not be content with like just being in the UK and you know do you know why can I not be content just doing a nine-to-five job that that was what used to go through my head and then now the more like the, actually the, this is what the podcast has helped with because I've spoken to a lot of people who have been in similar situations where they're like I'm not content I need to do something and they've gone and done it and I'm like realizing more and more that actually this is a very normal thing that some people do go through where it's you know you do Every now and then you'll, people do struggle with like that. It it, it it comes back to purpose. Like it's struggling with the purpose and it's you're looking at people around you who are like, oh, I've got a job and, you know, really happy. I've just bought got this flat and I'm living here and doing this. And, and I'm like, why can I not be content with that? Whereas now I'm like, I'm at a point where I'm like, actually, no, I can be content with that because I'm working towards these other things that are helping me achieve what I like. I can achieve what I want as well as having that. Whereas before it was like, because I was just doing that, I was like, I can't be content with this, but I wasn't realizing that I need to go and achieve more. If that makes sense.
1: It absolutely makes sense. And I think the only thing I could say to that would be it's, 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 it's hard sometimes to compare ourselves to other people Mm. and maybe all we really should do is compare ourselves to who we were, you know, a few years ago or a few months ago or compare ourselves to who we're going to be going forward. And it's just so true and, and I'm, I've done it myself too. you know, compare yourself to people around us who, like you said, have, have got different things going on and, and I resonate with that in many ways. But really, we should compare ourselves to, to who we were, like you said, a year ago before you had this podcast or compare yourself to yourself in five years when you will be further to who you want to become or, or wherever you want to be in life. So it's hard to do, but I think that's how we need to sort of transition our our views on life. Yeah.
0: Uh, it was Alex actually did a video on it about comparison. Is the th- it wasn't the thief of joy, but it was the thief of something I can't remember exactly what it was. And I was like, he put it perfectly in really? that. Yeah, nice. it's a really I'll, I'm gonna I'll link it in the description of this when I put it out, but yeah, it's like the way he spoke about it. It was like it was, I think he said it's the th- comparison is the thief of hard work because mm-hmm. when you compare yourself to others and where others are, it you, you really do struggle to achieve what you want to achieve because you're like, well, they're here and I'm only here but I want to be there now. And then you start getting in your own head about it. And he was, he was so right in what he was saying. Like you, that's where you compare to yourself. Like you look at yourself a year ago. What was I doing a year ago? And now where am I at? Am I better? Then that's good. I'm getting there, getting where I want to be. It's a slow process, but if you compare yourself to someone else, who's like already running, I don't know, you know, a hundred mile races, then you're never going to get there because you're always going to think fuck well i can't run as quick as them i can't run as far as them and how am i going to get there whereas like if you compare like last year i ran 5 miles this year i ran 26 i've actually achieved a lot like it it really does it it's that glass half full versus glass half empty kind of scenario
1: <laughs> well first of all yeah shout out to alex he's an, he's an incredible guy and he uh, he's very well spoken he's got some incredible ideas and the way he thinks about life i think is quite inspiring but it's yeah uh, yeah I, I i agree in many ways i think i think it's a yeah it's a, a complex thing that, that's what i think mm. in many ways it, which reminds yeah, me sorry so- the, last, the last point what was what did alex say sorry i've just lost my brain of thought there.
0: It was so the comparison is the thief of hard work. So it was like if you you know if you compare yourself to you rather than comparing yourself to others, you can achieve more because you can see the you can see where you're progressing. But if you compare yourself to others, you're never going to see progress.
1: Hundred percent, and that's thank you by the way. And that's why I think in this adventure world, it's quite weird because there's much less people to compare yourself to. Which is a blessing and a curse because that means there's less people to compare yourself to, but there are far more extremes. Because, like you said, the people you are then comparing yourself to, probably very similar in the podcast world, is they are people who are at the very top. You know, people who are hitting out 100 miles on the weekend and they're doing this and this and whatever it may be. And I don't know if that makes it harder or easier, but people who are maybe in the more traditional corporate world, you know, they've got so many people to compare themselves to, and, and of course that makes it tougher. But also there's there's far many more stages. something I think about with what I'm doing is there's very few people who are lucky enough to do this at 24 professionally. And, you know, there's only been a few people in history who have sustained that as a career. But it also is a blessing for me because it means there's no blueprint and I'm not following anyone's steps. I always give credit to those above me and, and, and my mentors and those who inspire me, my heroes. But there is no blueprint to do this. And that's quite unique. It means there's times when you go, gosh, wh- how do I get around this? Where do I go next? And there's not always someone to speak to about a certain thing because no one's been in this moment before. But actually, it also gives that total freedom and it, and it sometimes takes away that comparison. Uh, because you're right, comparison is it's totally a thief of joy. It's totally the thief of hard work. But it's also the thief of like that perfectionism You know, in many ways. Or it encourages perfectionism, I guess, as well, you know, which is a negative thing. I heard something great yesterday. It was like strive for excellence, not perfectionism, because it's so true. When we spend so much time trying to be the perfect thing, or you know, get something perfect, we often don't even do it. Or if we do, we we spend far too much time and and, and effort on it that than
0: we should. Mm. I want to get onto your seventeen marathons in seventeen days, because you said you gave yourself three months to prepare for that, do all the fundraising, all the media stuff three months to train for 17 consecutive marathons in 17 days is not a long time. Like <laughs> how, so what during that three months, what was it you were doing physically to prepare yourself for this? And I, cause I listened to your, your episode you did on the great British adventure podcast. I thought I was great, but, you said during that that obviously you it didn't fully prepare you for the 17 marathons in 17 days. So get just get into that for me,
1: that three months of preparation. 100%, Ethan, and that's, you're right, three months doesn't sound like a long time, and it wasn't a long, long time, and it definitely wasn't enough time, and that's why things got so tough. But for three months, I, so that was just after I decided to go full time. So I, I went all in with this, and I trained five days a week. I was doing about 100 kilometers a week, which for me at the time was huge, going from being a, uh, complete non-runner to then taking this on i think i'd done a couple you know marathons and ultras before but this was a totally different step i'd never done anything consecutively and that was one of the hardest parts which was to come it was running every day but three months wasn't enough it wasn't it wasn't i was training five days a week i thought well if i've only got three months you know there's no point trying to be perfect and do loads of snc and all these different things it was like, i'm just going to run five days a week and get myself to the best ability and at that time I was also really learning how to to do everything else outside because 95% of my work is is done before I even get to the start line it's all the behind the scenes the logistics and everything there and I was really thrown into you know the perfect initiation of right you've got to make this work and do you really want it because it was it was in at the time for me it was quite a hard challenge to, to start with hmm. so on day one how did you feel once you completed that <laughs> Probably a little bit scared. <laughs> scared, a little bit relieved we'd actually started it. I started on day one outside my granddad's old care home where he'd spent the last couple of years, and it was quite poignant because I and he, that was in Sheffield up, up north. So, and I got to see lots of the carers and the nurses at the home who looked after him, and that was quite an inspiring thing. And actually, the whole project it was for the 17 years he lived with dementia. That's why it was the 17 days. But we were also running or well, we plan to run in all these different parts of the UK which had researched labs for the charity because I wanted to highlight that work is being done now. And I think something we struggle with in terms of raising awareness and, and funds for dementia is because there is no cure right now. People don't see it as, they, they, they see no progress. What they don't see is behind the scenes, there is progress. There are these small successes and people are working on this non-stop. And I wanted to highlight that and remind people that we are all working for this. And that's exactly what we did. And on day one, it was just—it was an inspiring day to see those people. But it was also a bit of a relief to start. But probably more than anything, it was—it was a lot of fear that God, I've got 16 more days to go. And of course, on day one, and then really on day two, Storm Ernest started as well—the UK's worst storm in 30 years. So it was potentially the worst timing ever. And I remember waking up on day two to all my messages, none of them were positive. None of them said well done on yesterday or anything like that. All of them said, oh, such a shame about this storm. You know, enjoy the rest and you can go again in a few months. Or I remember one, it said, "Ah, such a shame. Maybe you can give us another crack later this year. Uh, And I didn't even know that what was really going on, you know, the blinds were still shut and it was just, yeah, things got tough.
0: Yeah. So during those next few days how was the body feeling and at what point was it that you really started
1: to struggle with the with the marathons the first 9 days were actually pretty smooth or as smooth as they can be with consecutive marathons it was just the storm and logistically it meant we had to cancel locations and we had to get in the car for 3 hours and drive to another part of the country where it was you know the wind was a little bit lower because it was like at some point it was like running on a treadmill And it was quite challenging and lots of like the universities we wanted to run on like Loughborough, for example, they sadly cancelled because they couldn't give us the safety sort of approval to run on their track because it was covered in trees and branches and all these things. But on day 10, that's when everything changed because on day 10, I woke up with shin splints, a chest infection and a fever. And like that, everything changed. Everything. So in those first nine days,
0: what sort of times were you running the marathons in? And on the 10th day... Mm. How how did you get? How did you start to prepare in that morning for going out, knowing that you're full, you are you you full well ill? You know mm-hmm. you you can barely walk. I can imagine because shin splints are a horrendous thing. Mm-hmm. So what what yeah? What was that morning like in the build up to it?
1: Well, the first the first nine days was probably averaging maybe five hours around the marathons. You know, the challenge was never for the times. So I wasn't too interested. I, went to, I knew I had to pace myself and I was doing quite a good job of that. I think some days I got a little bit carried away. I had some friends joining throughout and, and I also had some really incredible people joining me too, which also is like a good thing, but also, you know, encourage encouraged you to run a little bit faster maybe than you should have. And I'd gone maybe like below five hours, but I was trying to keep it at five hours. But you say, how did I prepare on day 10? Well, I didn't because on day 10, I woke up in shivers and I've never woken up in my life with shivers from pain. It was the, most, it was the strangest thing ever, but it was just like overnight. I don't know what happened, but my body just gave up. And my mum, bless her, my mum and dad were my support crew at the time, my head support crew. And I also had some incredible friends who were joining too throughout who were helping with the, the driving and, and the cycling next to me and things like that. But my mum woke me up on day 10 and said, Louis, do you want to go outside and run today? I said, no. Right, well, do you want to quit? No. Okay, well, you better go out and run then. And I tried putting on my shoes that day, and I was like, my shoe virtually wouldn't even fit because everything was so swollen as well. And I remember standing up, and I, it, it was just, it was like glass. Like, my shin was like glass. the only way I can explain it. And that first five kilometers on day 10 took three hours. Three hours. And, you know... I'm not a good runner and you don't need to be a good runner to know that the three hours for 5k, you know, it's slower than a walking pace. It's very, very slow. And that's because I, I could barely walk. And at the time and during that five kilometers, those first three hours, my dad was running around to all the local shops trying to ask for advice of what to do. We phoned up like a dozen physios and, and doctors and people and everyone refused to work with us because they said, well, what do you mean? He's still running. We're not going to work with someone who's got shin splints and he's running. And we said no, no. You, you know, you don't understand what we're doing. And I said to them all, like and my dad gave about the feedback. I said, like, well, I don't want to work with them anyway. If they don't understand how important this is, I don't want to work with them. They can't be part of this team. And in the end, no one worked with us because no one was willing to. And we just had to fight through it, and it was just horrendous. It was just horrendous. And looking back now, it was such a powerful moment because it definitely was a, a defining moment in, in the same, in the sense of, do you really want it? Do you really want this? do you want to do this for your career? This is the first challenge. Things are only going to get tougher. Are you willing to go through this? And we talk about making that decision, you know, do you pick maybe the easier option and go down a traditional route or do you go down this slightly more unusual and untraditional route? It's like, well, there's going to be some more unusual challenges than than others really face. And this was one of them. And I had to go out there and I think the day took maybe nine or 10 hours in the end of just hobbling and, and just, just slowly slowly trying to shuffle and walk to get to that that 26.2 mark mark and we did and day 11 it was tough again I think maybe it was an hour quicker and then day 12 was a really uh, transformative moment in the project because my friend Kaz who I'd met during the lockdowns working with React the disaster response charity she taught us how to wrap ice packs around our shins it was something she'd been she was a medic in the army and she done this for her soldiers and it was a way they could get through training when you know they had fractures and shin spins and the worst of the worst and we ended up changing these uh, ice packs four times during each marathon and the plan wasn't oh this is going to heal the legs but it, may, it might just numb the pain so we can get through it that's what it's about it wasn't about let's do this perfectly and glamorously and all this no let's just get through this As long as we hit 26.2 miles in that 24 hour mark each day, then we have done a marathon. And in the end, you know, the the times came back down and we didn't ever need 24 hours. But that's what I was willing to do. I was willing to crawl it if I really needed to, because this was my new career. Great. But far more importantly, this was about my granddad. This was about honoring the 17 years he'd suffered. And each day I thought about that extra year. I thought about the year that my nan, my mum the nurses, the carers, everyone around him, not just him suffered, because that's what it is. And anyone who's affected by dementia knows it affects the whole family and not just an individual It is completely strips someone of their personality of their memories of their life. It's and it does it in the most horrible way because it, it drags you down progressively and slowly. And I thought about that. And I thought about when I my granddad was diagnosed when he was 58. So I was only two years old. And Sadly, as a result, my memories of my granddad aren't lovely memories of, you know, playing with him or hearing stories of him after his time in the army of him abseiling off mountains or skiing or boxing or whatever it may be. It was remembering that he every year would lose something of his life, whether that was learning how to you know, knowing how to drive, whether that's knowing how to use a knife and fork, knowing how to read, forgetting who I was, forgetting who my mum was and then eventually, you know, forgetting who, who my nan was and then himself. That's who I remember. And that's what I thought about each day. And, and that's really all it came down to. And I was receiving so many incredible messages from people who were affected by dementia or who were working in the dementia field and, and saying thank you. And I felt like a fraud in many ways. I said, well, what do you mean thank you? I'm doing this for you. But it was just a nice reminder, I guess, for, for them that they were being acknowledged. And that's what it's all about. You know, All I want to do is just offer one thing to people in this dementia world it is hope that we can find a cure and hope that we are doing something right now to find it. That's all I care about hope. Mm. That's all. it is, And that's what I was trying to do each day. This is just coming into my head because it's
0: we just because we were talking about purpose before mm. and the, you know, a cure for dementia is something that we, we do strive for like it, cause it does affect so many, so many people. If that cure comes in the next couple of
1: years, What's your driving force then? Well, if if that happens in the next few years, that would be amazing. But Mm. sadly, it's not. And that's another reason why I think people are put off by by dementia in terms of charities and things like that is because it's a long, long battle. And the reason I've given my lifetime to this is because I think it might take my whole life. And God willing, I do live a long life through these adventures and, and I can continue to support it if it happens in the next few years amazing and i'm sure there'll be a shift then in in my purpose but for now i'm not prepared for it to happen in the next few years i'm prepared to give 20 30 plus years because even if in the next two years we find a cure safer frontal temporal dementia then maybe we need to focus then on alzheimer's or then we need to to focus on vascular dementia or dementia with lewybods there's so many different types and there's also as we said the diagnosis so if one day we find a cure amazing or now we need to make sure that anyone who needs it can be diagnosed. And as we said at the start, one in three people aren't. We're a long way away from making that a uh, full number. So, it would be amazing if we hit it the next few years. But uh, I'm prepared for the long run for this one.
0: Yeah. No, no, I'm not uh, like the, I'm not disputing that. And it's more of a because you're so because what you're doing is so so selfless. It's like you know to say you know that's all, right now that's all you care about is finding a cure. And it's, it's great. and But what I mean is like, so that's the driving force. Every day you're getting up and you know you've got to do X, Y, and Z to get better, to do the things which can allow you to raise the money for Alzheimer's Research UK. But my my the, the thing is like, so if that was gone tomorrow, if that was gone, they were like, where, where would your head be at with that? Because obviously your whole purpose of this career that you've built so far has been targeted directly at that. So then from there, I'm sort of thinking, because it's like, it goes back to like Tyson Fury. He's a great example. As soon as he quit boxing, he was like, well, what now? Like, what do I do now? And it's obviously a very different scenario, mm. if that makes sense. But yeah, it's that, what now?
1: Sorry, yeah, I understand. Well, I think that's what's quite amazing with how lucky I've been with this is the thing I am doing is I also do love them. So I do love these adventures. And in many ways, they are also a purpose of mine so i think i would absolutely continue with those and i have other goals to hopefully pioneer big adventures i'd love to lead this flag of adventure for for our generation and you know for british adventure so i think that would absolutely be a a switch of focus and i would absolutely continue these but I also have dreams outside of the adventure world which one day i'll hopefully get to to bring into fruition
0: Hmm. so going back to the 17 marathons in 17 days did when day ten happened, and it obviously took you a hell of a lot longer than what you anticipated, any of the marathons to take you. If yeah, if we go so if we go back to the seventeen marathons in seventeen days, day ten took a lot longer than what you anticipated it to be. So from there, did you was there any moments where you thought that it was it was not going to be possible for you to complete it?
1: Mentally. N- no, but physically, maybe yes. There were, there were moments of negativity for sure. And there were actually lots of moments of negativity and reflection from outside. I, I remember I had maybe 200 people join me from from friends also to the public. You know, I'd put out a public invite for, for lots of the marathons. And out of the 200 people, we only had really one negative experience. And that was someone who joined. And they, I think it was on day maybe 12 or 13. So I was in that bad place. And they basically, oh, you know. I thought you'd be running and that's because I was sort of shuffling and I said yeah you know I've, I've got unfortunately I've got these shins so I'm doing my best I'm, I'm hoping for maybe six hours today and it was the only real negative experience of the whole project and and there were in reflection maybe there were more and that was the only one I'd, I'd realized at the time uh, of people who maybe had said you know you need to stop or you need to rest or whatever it is and obviously my, my body physically had given up to, to many many degrees but mentally no. And I think the mind is far stronger than the body. And and now when I train for, you know, the most recent projects and things like that, I I put so much effort into my physical training because I know you need to get your physical, you know, your ability to such a place. But it is your mind which will carry you through the hardest parts. But they need to work together. And at the time, I was very fortunate to have that purpose, to have that mental strength. And I don't take that for granted. It's something I, I still work on as well today. But my physical ability wasn't there at all. Because I'd come from a running, uh, rugby background, I, you know, was always a little bit of a heavier guy, and I uh, was never a natural athlete, and I'm still not in many ways. So that's why now, when I do prepare for something, I train really tough, and I, I put myself into these, you know, sort of training camps where I don't go out for, you know, eight weeks, ten weeks, whatever it is, and I train really hard, and I dedicate myself, you know, and try and become an athlete for those short periods because I have to. Because you know there's so many adventurers and runners in this space who can rock up and they can run a marathon without training, and that's amazing. But I'm not one of those, so I have to now take things a lot more seriously. And that definitely scared me, but also inspired me to do that after that project. Because you know it's easy sometimes to think, you know, oh, I was 22 at the time, oh, I can easily get go out and do this, and I don't have to worry too much about my health. But if I have dreams to do this for a long career, and I need to do this for a long career as well to support this fight then I need to look after my body from day one. And some people might have seen that I take my recovery really seriously now. Every hour of training, I put try and put an hour into my recovery. And, yeah, I try and take things a little bit more serious now.
0: Mm. So you complete the 17 marathons in 17 days. You allow yourself to recover. Um What moment after that are you thinking, right, what's next?
1: Well, I... Actually, that I'd planned out that whole year before I'd even started the seventeen marathons. So I'd really given myself quite a tough, a tough mental uh, side to it because that was the start of twenty. It was November I decided to go full time, and then that started in Feb 2022. But actually, i planned out the whole year, and I knew in my first year of full time adventure, whatever that might be, I knew I needed to do six things, and I don't know why six, but I, it just felt right. And i planned out the whole year, and I knew. I think it was two months after that, I was going to row the English Channel. A month after, I was going to go into the mountains and climb Mont Blanc. And then I then had to swim and a few other things. So actually, it was already planned out. So that was quite easy and that was quite good in that sense. And it's something I now try and encourage myself to do because it's very easy when we come home or we finish a big challenge. It's, you know, the post-blues expedition or post-expedition blues, as we call it. You know, it's quite easy to, to lose that purpose very, very quickly because when it's been so high, you know, then it drops very, very low. Um, very quickly. So actually, it was already planned out what I was going to do next, and that was I was going to row the English channel led by Darren Edwards, who's an incredible uh, British adventurer. Yeah.
0: Darren Edwards, as in, I think I know you're on. I think I was about, I was supposed to get him on the podcast a few months ago. Oh, you should it kind do. Of, yeah. It kind, of, it kind of just went flat for a bit, so I, I definitely need to pick that up. But he's, he's black hair beard. That, Darren Edwards, yeah. yeah. He's known yeah.
1: for. I think he was the first person to to hand cycle all seven continents, yes. seven mountains. He's uh, he's done oh, I think he's done a, a trekking expedition across maybe Iceland or something like. That. He's just amazing. He's really really amazing. And if you talk yeah, talk about inspiring stories, yeah, I'm a fraud compared to him. You need to get him in this. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so that that was the plan, and we did that, and yeah, I think we were the first fully abled and also disabled team to to row the English Channel. Hmm.
0: So. You've obviously you set yourself six um, big events for that year then. So that's two months between events. How on earth are you... Pre- so you say there. now you put an hour of recovery in for every hour of activity that you do or training. So how on earth are you structuring recovery, S&C work, training for that specific event? Because obviously being a rower is very different to running. And, you know, then mountain climbing is very different to rowing. And you, the, very di- they're on very different ends of the spectrum. So how on earth are you planning and prepping all of this? Have you got people helping you with the pre- planning side of it? And obviously preparation,
1: I'd imagine you had an S&C coach at this point. Mm. well at the time so that was very much the start of my career and it was all myself really I'm lucky now where I have building a team around me who are helping with yeah absolutely I've got an incredible coach Jake who helps with my S&C there's people at the body lab who who look after all my recovery and there's specialists there who help with all of that I've got a team helping with, with other sides as well now which is amazing but at that time it was very much I was just try my best there was no perfect answer or perfect plan it was just i'm just going to try and be as adaptable as possible so i knew i didn't want to do another big running project straight away after the 17 and 17 days i knew i didn't want to ever be defined by a certain sport and i just wanted to be adaptable and actually the goal i've always had the last two years i just want to be as injury resistant as possible because it's not about being the fastest, it's not about being the fittest or, or looking the best. None of those are my goals. It's being as injury resistant as possible. Because as you said, six things in a fairly short period over 12 months, you need to be able to go straight into your training in between events. You don't, you can't have months off or time off. You need to be adaptable. And in that sense, I just would shift my my cardio straight over. So if I'd finished the running project, I would then for that month or two, however long I had to straight, switch straight to rowing, then straight to to hiking or climbing, and then just onto swimming and whatever it may be, but that was it was quite exciting actually that year in, in, in retrospect because it was so different. Every moment of the year was so, so different, um, but it actually kept it really exciting. Hmm. Was there any moments during that year where you you
0: picked up injuries and thought, "Oh shit, this is really gonna, this is going to be the to the nail, whether or not this is going to happen?" because you know with especially when you, you you're pushing your body to such limits all the time and like you said you're not one of those people who can just rock up and run a marathon you really do have to put the time and effort into train so yeah did like what were injuries like during this whole process because i feel like it's very hard to give your body any rest 100%. in between it
1: 100 percent, and the only injury i'm very lucky to say only injury i had and it's actually the last injury i had was those shin splints on the 17 and 17 days. So somehow I managed to get through that whole year, the swimming, the climbing, the rowing without any. And I put that down to, yeah, the focus I put on my recovery. And also I I think the the luck of my age, and obviously our bodies do adapt and a lot quicker. And I'm sure it'd be tougher if I was 10 or 20 years older, but it was the recovery. Um, But it was also, I think in some ways my mind and the mental side of, I wanted to be there in all these places. So I, I always took things really seriously. But yeah, the the shin splints were my last injury. And and again, this most recent Seven Continents project, I managed to get through the whole 14 months without an injury. Mental resilience
0: is something that doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. It takes a lot of work for people to get there. So what have you done throughout this career of yours to build it to that point where... On your first challenge, during are the seventeen marathons in seventeen days, and you've got the shin splint, and you're, you know, like you said, there's people, there's external factors where they're saying, "Oh, maybe you should rest, take time off." How, what, how did you get to that point where you're like, "No, this is a matter of I will crawl it if I have to."
1: Wow, uh, that's a that's a tough question. I think the going back to that promise I made when I was. When I was 19 at my granddad's funeral, that was one of the toughest but most amazing things I've ever done because that promise was so powerful and it's defined my life in so many ways. But I would also have to give lots of credit to that answer to the people around me. So I give that credit to my parents. They are incredible. I give that to my friends. I give that to the teachers I had at school. I, I, I put the full credit to the people around me. And I think in many ways the reason I'm still where I am today now is because of those people around me. And I think things are easier when you can dedicate yourself full time to something. But in terms of mental resilience, it's, it's not always as easy as people may may see. And things do of course get tough, absolutely. And there are always moments in these, in these tough moments where you have to ask yourself, why am I really here? And I think my best answer to that question would be the word responsibility. Everything I've done, Every single challenge the last two years i've chosen to do it, and although it may have been for someone else, my grandfather, or for the charity, I am the one who made that final decision and When things get really, really tough, I can say I chose to be here and I think a great example of that was climbing Mont Blanc shortly after the English channel it, you know Mont Blanc's not the toughest mountain in the world, and but it is quite a dangerous one. I think there's a hundred deaths a year, and there was a moment where we were crossing some dangerous ice, and my guide we were we were roped up to each other we were only one-on-one on the point this point because my other climbing partner had dropped out because of fatigue and we hadn't spoken for like six hours and it was summit day we reached this ice and he turns to me pulls down his buff and he shouts over the wind if one of us fall we can't catch each other pulls his buff back up and he's got like the most dead serious eyes and this is like supposed to be one of the best guides in, in the alps he's been climbing for 25 plus years and when he says that to you that he can't save you then you know that's quite a tough moment and you know you can either focus or you can freeze and I all I ask myself is why am I here you know I was almost trying to put the blame on someone Uh, but there's only one person to put the blame on in that sense if there was any blame and that was me because I made that decision I had chosen to be there and it's something now I think about both on my adventures and outside of my adventures. Everything I do is I try and just do things that I choose to do. And of course, sometimes we have to do things we don't want to do. I get that. And I'm very lucky to, to, to do that less than most people do. But when I really get to a tough moment, the 17th and 17th days waking up with shin splints, crossing the dangerous ice. You know, more recently, you know, running through deserts or, or the Amazon when things get tough. Why am I here? I chose to be here, not anyone no. else not doing this to to impress a girl or impress a sponsor no i'm doing this for me i'm doing this because yeah. i chose to be here of course it's for my granddad it's for other people too but i'm the one who made that final decision and that for me mm-hmm. has been a really really powerful word in, in my mental resilience and in my mental focus and ability
0: yeah, vocabulary change is one of the biggest things I've found has helped shift my mentality from quite what was quite a negative one to quite a positive one okay. in terms of just like that where you said, you know, I chose to do this. Like today, so this week I had planned to run for over, like it would have been my first hour plus run in over a year because I've had like knee surgery and stuff. But Achilles played up. And what would have happened last year or two years ago would have been like, for fuck's sake, I can't be arsed. I don't want to have to go on the bike. I just want to go on a run. And then I just sit there and moan about it. Whereas I got up today, went on the bike. It was a two-hour session on the bike. No one wants to do a two-hour session on a stationary bike. But it was that thing of I got there and I was like, I I chose to do this. This is on me. So I just got on there and just got it done. And it wasn't even bad. But it's that thing of as soon as you allow yourself to think the negatives... It feeds into every, it drip feeds. It's a constant drip feed, which then goes, it's not just about the activities you're doing. It's everything in life. It's when you get up in the morning and your coffee doesn't taste as good as it should. You know, it's the every little minute thing that happens in a day, you become so negative about just because you start with those little things like, oh, I can't be arsed because of this. And as soon as you start seeing it as I chose to do this or like I made that coffee, that's on me. Things aren't bad. Genuinely, things aren't bad. Like, it's it's a really good situation to be in when you can realize, like, this is, everything's on me. There's, like, all these things, controllable factors. That's all I can do is control the controllables. Uncontrollables, fine. We deal with them when they come. Mm-hmm. But the things I can control, if they're within my power, I make sure full well I take full responsibility for them. And if anything goes wrong, again, that's on me.
1: Couldn't agree more. Perfectly said. mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm so
0: the seven marathons in seven continents Mm. this is fascinating to me because you didn't just pick seven marathons in seven continents you picked to do them in the most remote places of each continent and so what what was it why did you want to do the most remote places for one and two which one was the hardest one of the seven
1: (laughs) uh well, well first, it's really nice to say that you, you find it interesting. That's uh, always an, a great thing to hear. It was, I, I found out, when I when I knew I wanted to take this next step for my support for the charity, I knew I needed something, you know, glo- a global challenge for this global cause. And at the time, I heard about something called the Seven Continents Marathon Club. And it's this small group of runners and explorers, I think about 400 people who had run a marathon on all seven continents. You know, I think more people have rode an ocean or climbed Everest or been to space than done this. I thought, right, sounds quite interesting. Um, And I looked into it and I saw no one, you know, often people do it in seven days, which is amazing. But they sometimes just see the airports. There's some people who do it, you know, they run the traditional marathons like the London Marathon, the Singapore Marathon and so on. But then I thought, well, you know, I'm supposed to be an explorer. You know, I want to actually go to some of the more remote and tough places. I want to challenge myself in some maybe harsher ways. You know, maybe that will raise better awareness and donations and gain better press. And I decided, well, I'm going to run in the most remote place in each continent or what I perceive to be the most remote place. So in the end, I ran through two deserts, Alaska, the outback, the Amazon rainforest, the Arctic and Antarctica. And it took me 14 months. And the contrast was the biggest thing. You know, each um, each different marathon had different weather, different wildlife dangers, different uh, communities and, and logistical challenges. But the toughest would have to be the deserts, 100%. The deserts, and I mean that both the the hot deserts, but also the cold desert. Obviously, Antarctica. Antarctica is the biggest desert in the world, and I think those would be the toughest for for many many reasons. But they were truthfully, Ethan. They were all really really tough, and they're all challenging. <laughs> That's the truth. I think the the hot ones maybe were a little bit harder than the cold ones, just because I'm, I'm a redhead, so maybe I'm more better adapted for the cold than the heat. But know they were all tough and i struggled on every single one everyone hmm. so take me through the
0: logistics of this challenge because when i spoke to alex you know it costs what it was thirty thousand dollars just for the antarctica marathon like mm-hmm. australian dollars thirty thousand australian dollars oh, yeah. so it's a hell it's a hell of a lot of money to you know to spend on that but then also you're running in the amazon rainforest you're running in the deserts you really like but you it's the flight tickets all these different things so logistically when you're sat there thinking i want to run in these remote places what's the next step there for you to then go right this is what i've got to do to make it happen
1: well i very fortunately over the those that first half of 2022 i threw the 17 marathons the the, the row, the climb, I met some sponsors on that very first challenge who who are now still my main two sponsors. They're called Thomas Franks and The Body Lab and they are without doubt one of the greatest reasons I am where I am today. And I've achieved a few, a few things I have because they believed in me at the start of my career and still at the start of my career because I'm, I'm very much still just at the beginning. But five out of the seven marathons were self-organized. So unfortunately, like as you said, with Antarctica, the only legal way to run a marathon in the heart of Antarctica is through this official event called the Antarctic Ice Marathon. As you said, it's a ludicrous price, but it's the only way you can logistically and, and legally do it. And the other, uh, the, there was I think the Wadi Rum for the Asian leg I ran with Nick Butter. He was hosting a trip out there, so uh, he's one of my heroes and one of my mentors. And I wanted to just you know to, an opportunity to run through a desert with with one of your heroes is not one you turn down, right? So I did that one with him. But the other five I organized myself. So I took full control and responsibility, as we said, for those marathons. So I chose my support crew. I chose the location. I picked the the flight dates and everything like that. And that was without doubt harder than the marathons itself. Absolutely. Because I think a perfect example for that was the Amazon rainforest. We it turns out there's there's not really any marathons in, in the Amazon rainforest or the parts where we wanted to do it at least and we wanted to try and run on the indigenous land of a uh, of a community called the Kichwa community because a big part of this project was was always bringing it back to dementia and I wanted to show that dementia is also in the most remote parts of the world I wanted to show that dementia is a global uh, global cause and it needs to be a global fight and. It took three months of negotiations on email and WhatsApp to get approval from the elders in the Amazon, because of course I I don't speak the indigenous type of Spanish that that they do, and they wouldn't speak directly to me anyway. And and I didn't want to go to their land without having any sort of first permission or approval. Always try and be as respectful as possible. I'm very aware I am just a visitor. I'm just a guest when I'm going to these places, you know, the people, the wildlife, that it's their home and I need to be as respectful as possible. So, in the end, we found someone in the capital in Quito uh, who did all our sort of uh, communication for us back and forth. And it took three months of negotiations to get the final approval from the elders because what took so long was they didn't know really what a marathon was. And running and exercise, they don't obviously have gyms, you know, there's no electricity, there's no running water, you know, so they certainly don't go to the gym. And they had no idea what a marathon was. So, when they found out, oh, there's this ginger kid who wants to come and you know run on our land like they didn't get it they didn't really understand it of, of course totally understandable and it took some time just to educate them a little bit about what we were doing and why we were doing it they didn't again know what dementia was we had to they knew what the symptoms were but they didn't know it was an actual illness or disease and it was down to this incredible guy who called i think it was called vladi who in the capital of ecuador did our communications for us and got our approval and in the end and the locals there were amazing (laughs) they ended up running with us even though they'd never trained there was this lady who rocked up and she she turned up she was the wife of one of the the elders and she was in like this sort of orange sun dress and she had flip-flops on and I, I remember being told before, like, oh, the elder's wife wants to join you for some of it. I was like, okay, no problem. You know, we'd been taught, you know, how to be respectful and all these different things in terms of always shake hands and what to do. And I saw her and I saw, oh, I saw she had flip-flops. I thought, okay, no problem. She, she's not joining anymore. So anyway, me and my friend, Max, who was joining me on this trip, he, uh, we started, we get running. And then suddenly we got overtaken by this lady. And she's pulled her sundress up. And underneath her, like, these sports short sort of things. And uh, and she's holding her flip flops in her hand, and she sprints straight past us, because again, she didn't know how long a marathon was. And you know, most people when we start a marathon, we start knowing, right? We've got three, four, five, six hours. You know, we, we've got to pace ourselves. Mm. But she didn't know how long we were going to be running for. So maybe she just thought this is a race, and she just sprinted and overtook us. And in the end, she did about 14 kilometers, and we couldn't keep up with her. No joke, couldn't keep up with her at all. She was Jesus. Fast. She was maybe half my height she was probably a third of my weight and she's wearing a dress <laughs> and flip flops and I couldn't keep up with her. She was amazing. And she had no idea again, why we were really there, or what we were doing, which we couldn't speak a word of each other's languages. And um, I think we high fived a couple of times and, and that was it. And it was, she was just brilliant. She, yeah, it, you know, the, the logistically though, it was very tough, this project. Sorry, I went off a little bit there. Uh, nah, <laughs> it's interesting. It's nice, it's- I haven't talked to them in a little while, so it's always nice.
0: Yeah no that's a really interesting story because it's it just shows as well the fact that like these big things that we're doing don't like even to, to some people in the world they just mean nothing because they just don't like to them like you said they don't know what a marathon is they probably have no idea what a charity is nope. and they're like so this guy so they're thinking so this guy wants to raise money by running this ridiculous distance for a charity for for an organization and they're like What like in their brain? It's probably like I've got no idea what you're trying to tell me, and it's but it's crazy that they were so welcoming, and then even the fact that she went and did that with you and was so happy to be there and stuff. And yeah, it's just it's it's incredible to show that like no matter whether you can speak someone's language or not, or if they
1: understand the purpose of it, people can still be so welcoming. Hundred percent, one hundred percent, and I think actually being lucky to visit all seven continents, some of these more remote places, the only thing it's taught me is how small our world really is. We all understand each other, the, the world of adventure, the world of sport, the world of just you know being friendly and happy with one another. It's universal. And yes, we didn't speak each other's language. Yes, we had no idea of each other's backgrounds, but there was empathy, there was compassion, and we knew we were both there for something positive and we were there to be respectful to their land and learn a bit more and we we ended up spending a few more days on their land very very incredible and we visited the school and we made a little donation as well from our own sort of pockets to to their medical supply and things like that because they were just incredible and they were so hospitable and welcoming again they had no idea who we were or what we were doing but they didn't need to and adventure has taught me so many things but one of them is it is universal the same with the australian outback I had no idea how to organize a marathon in the outback. And I ended up finding one of the biggest outback towns. And I found the mayor's email. And I sent him an email. And he responded straight away saying there's one guy in our town who runs marathons. He's ran 95 or something. His name's Grant. Send him an email. Okay, I'll send him an email. He replied straight away, Yep, I'll help you, mate. Uh, I'll, I'll cycle next year and I'll plan the whole route. And it, again, we talk about naivety with these adventures is so much of what I've done is trusting people and trusting people I don't know and going off the, the luck of, you know, an email and I flew out all the way, you know, to the outback three flights, or whatever it was, trusting that he would turn up. And I remember I was staying in this little shack motel sort of thing in this outback town and he had sent me an email. We'd never spoken. We'd never zoomed. We'd never met in person before. And we were like, right, we'll run tomorrow. And it, he said, like, meet me at five, five, ten past five in the morning or something. So it was just before the sun come up. So I was standing outside this shack. I would said, right, I'm here. And he said he was going to pick me up in his truck. And I remember it got to like maybe five minutes after the time we were supposed to meet. And I was holding in my one bag like all my waters and snacks, which I brought because I didn't know if you know you could get everything in the outback. And I was trying to be as prepared as possible. And in my other bag, I had like you know my my clothes and my things and he didn't turn up after five minutes i thought oh you know that that happens okay no problem you know what why would he we've spoken twice maybe over email no problem and i thought oh you know okay what am i going to do i'm gonna have to try and run this myself or find someone maybe i can find like a, a local who can help me and i can pay them for the day and five minutes later his truck pulls up and he jumps out this guy grant little guy called grant and he was amazing he gives me a big hug and he says jump in the truck we jump in and we drive around to the local cemetery And there is the running club in the outback. They have their own running club. There was about eight people, I want to say. And we started running in sunrise, following the kangaroo footsteps, surrounded by eucalyptus trees, with the sun just sort of just perfectly bouncing off this incredible orange ground. And about eight people. And they did about, we did about maybe 10 kilometers together or so. And then they went off and they had their their jobs. You know, many people in that town working construction and Grant had taken the whole day off work as well as an incredible lady called Lisa, and they supported me for the next four, five, maybe yeah, maybe six hours. It was probably in the end total, including breaks, and Lisa was driving this sort of four-by-four four in, in the back, and Grant was cycling next to me, and I didn't know them before. I'd never spoke to them on the phone or anything, but the power of an email made it all possible, and it was incredible. That is incredible, yeah.
0: Australians are some of the most hospitable people I've ever so I lived there for uh, getting on. It was close to two years. I only moved back to the UK yeah. at the end of November. Yeah, oh, wow. where um, I was in Melbourne, amazing. And yeah, just the some of the people I met, like you, are just friends for life. Like they just people there. Like I went to I went to Magnetic Island, which is up on uh, the east coast. It's like so where Gold Coast is is a bit higher up. Okay, and um, I went to there and like there's on this island there's just so many people hitchhiking and you just see people pulling over just picking them up i was like "Fuck okay, it, i'm gonna get involved with this because i'd had i'd hired a car at the time so it was like i was just driving around and then like i was driving from point to point you know to do hikes and to go see the sights and what have you and you just see people and i would just pick them up and it was class because it's like the way australians were and just picking the people up i was then like oh, i should do that and then I got to meet these great people along the way because like they were so hospitable. I was like, I should be that hospitable mm. sort of thing. And yeah, there's just I don't know, there's something about Aussies, the way they hold themselves and the way they are, like the sense of humour and all these different things, that are just top level people.
1: That's awesome. Well, you know there you go, you know far more than me that exactly. You you're right. And it how awesome is that, that 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 way it already runs then encourage you to also do it, which will then encourage others. And it's 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 amazing that, that sort of reflection is sometimes all we need in terms of positivity and support and mm. it's incredible that it's universal as well that you're on the other side of the world and you're you're helping people and helping they're helping you yeah, it's just amazing it's awesome mm. it's so wholesome and i think sometimes with these adventures and with all of life you know we sometimes get a little bit overwhelmed and, and overconsumed with how serious things get because you know life can get serious with with, with health with money and all these various issues but sometimes it's so amazing just to be in these really wholesome, lovely moments with someone, like you said, in Australia, picking them up or someone in the Amazon or the Outback, wherever it is. It's quite amazing.
0: Yeah. And it's like, it's interesting as well that like, because we look at these challenges at surface level and we see them as like, oh, this guy's just running a marathon. And it's like, no during these times you're actually meeting people who a lot of them will become friends for life where you, you won't speak to them for three or four years and then all of a sudden you'll get like an email or a message from someone and you're constantly then like yeah it's just you, you meet people along the way because I feel like you you during something like that where it's so hard mm. and they understand how hard that is as well they, they're they on almost on a level with you where it's like
1: instant friendship kind of thing 100% 100% and yeah you're absolutely right and there's many people who've been part of this project i had support crews in each place i always work with the locals no one knows the land or the wildlife better than the locals so for me that was an important thing and gosh i hope to stay in touch with those people for the rest of my lives because they made the project possible but you're right the the stories from the project aren't the marathon they're not the run you know of course the runs were tough and i suffered for five six hours but all the stories are behind them they are getting to the start line they're the meeting the locals the the wildlife the scenery it's afterwards that's the stories that's where Mm. we can hopefully have an impact with the opportunities like today to to share with you and tell some of these stories or I've started uh, I do talks one of my sponsors Thomas Frank so I go to their clients you know in schools and also in in the corporate world And, and I do a few talks and things because it's funny yeah you're right the reason i go with the word explorer is because i'm not going to go in and tell you a story about how to run or running it's not my interest it's not my passion and it's not my forte but maybe i can share a few stories about some of the locals of you know the arctic about the incredible scenery of the antarctic about the yeah things like that because that's actually what is interesting and that's what excites me yeah, in, in another mm. way so the
0: antarctica marathon Mm. You went, you went there. So during, so during the time where in the southern hemisphere, at that lo- like that low on the planet, it's twenty four hours of daylight. Yeah. And you said in a in the previous podcast that you were there for around sixty seven hours. Is that yeah. right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Research, <laughs> yeah, do my exactly. research. Tell you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sixty seven hours. So that's nowhere near enough time to acclimatize, and also twenty four hours of daylight. You've got no circadian rhythm working there at all so how on earth did you get to that like how did did you get through that whole time because when i was speaking to alex and stuff he even he said he struggled
1: like because it was just you can't adjust at all you're right and it's so strange and i've never experienced 24 hours of of daylight ever and i'd pretty much just experienced 24 hours of darkness in the arctic just before so i was going from a real extreme but it's really tough it's really tough and like the night before I maybe had two or three hours of sleep because you've got the, 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 the tent uh, people don't expect. It's like a sauna. So hot and you know, you think you're camping in Antarctica, you think you're gonna be frozen and shivering and covered in layers. You're not. You're there in, you know, your underwear you know, just in the tent, not even got a sleeping bag because it's so hot in there, because there's no ozone layer and it's 24 hours of the sun and it's just shining down, beating off the snow and it's, the, the tents become like saunas, it's so hot. So then as soon as you step outside, and especially if the wind has picked up because the wind changes like that, it's the most unpredictable place in the world and it's so cold and suddenly you've got to be totally covered because they say 20 minutes of exposed skin can lead to frostbite i think half an hour without uh, sun protection uh, eye protection can lead to snow blindness so you've got all these dangers and worries about your health and just surviving there that that's actually what your priority becomes it becomes a challenge of survival not running i'm not sure if alex if he said something along those lines but It's just, I mean, first of all, Alex did amazing. He was, I think, one of the top runners and he he actually, yeah, he he was amazing. I remember I got overtaken, obviously, a few times by him and he was just flying by. And there was other people who, you know, took maybe double as long as him. And you could see they were very much more just surviving and he was maybe more thriving in those conditions. But it is really tough. And it's also tough because no one knows how to do it. No, we have briefing the night before where they they basically just tell you all the stuff you can't do don't do this don't do this don't do this this can lead to frostbite this can lead to this all these things are just throw at you don't do this don't do this and they're showing you you know the most horrible photos on this slideshow of of people losing you know fingers or horrible frostbite or all these things and you just leave that tent the night before thinking gosh like you know i thought i was supposed to come here to do something amazing to run a marathon in antarctica you know, one of the rarest opportunities in the world and I'm here to enjoy it. And you think, no, actually I'm here now to actually need to survive. You know, I can enjoy this afterwards. And, it, you know, they say the biggest advice they give you is don't sweat. So, well, come on, what do you mean? Don't sweat during a marathon. It's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous advice, yeah. you know, sweating and running, they're synonymous and it's normal. And, you know, they say, cause if you sweat your clothes can freeze and then that can lead to, to again, to frostbite and, and various other issues. So, in the end, you know, I think I had to change my base layers twice during the marathon. I had to run into a tent and change because I was starting to sweat. And it's just all these little weird things like when you get to a water station or an aid station. You know, I think there was. So we were fully support crewed the whole way. So it was like a, just over 10 kilometers, like a ten and a half kilometer loop uh, we were running at Union Glacier, which is like this temporary camp they send up every summer. And it's mainly used for the South Pole explorers and the people who are walking across Antarctica and things like that. It's there. It's there sort of there go-to spot in terms of if there's an issue you know if they need to get evacuated they get evacuated there before they get back to 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 chile or to south america and so this is where we were running and you get to these aid stations i think there was two you know uh, five kilometers then back at base and they give you when you get there they give you a cup with like a powerade in it a hot powerade and they give you a snowball and it's like I, I've, most of the marathons I've done have been self-organized, but I've done a few organized racing events and, you know, in London or wherever they give you a gel, they give you this, you know, nice parade or Lucas say, here you're getting given like a hot drink and a snowball and like, it just reminds you of where you are because obviously they can't keep cold drinks because they'd freeze. So you're supposed mm-hmm. to put snowball straight into the hot drink, it goes down a little bit in temperature and then you drink it. And it's just these little weird things like it's so, so strange mm-hmm and I'd had a little bit of practice with the cold running from Alaska and the Arctic just before so I, I knew kind of how my body uh, to manage my temperature and things but but obviously not well enough
0: mm. so you've com- you've completed that that's the end of the seven marathons across seven continents and then you get the opportunity to deliver the let this letter that you carried throughout the entire trip so just take us through what this letter was what it what it had enclosed in it and also how you got that opportunity to
1: take it to 10 Downing Street sure so on World Alzheimer's Day September last year I on Sky News I published my open letter to the Prime Minister so addressing the dementia diagnostics that we mentioned in the UK so one in three people in England with dementia are never formally diagnosed simply not good enough and it means two main things it means people aren't getting the care they need right now and they deserve because obviously to get professional care which often so many people need especially during the later ends of dementia you you need to have a uh, a accurate and you need to have a doctor's you know diagnosis but also it means when people do uh means when life-changing treatments do become available it means people won't be able to get access to these drugs again they don't have a doctor's diagnosis so this is what we've been fighting for and we found out from alzheimer's research uk that 16 million pounds would increase dementia uh, lumbar puncture tests which are like a fast accurate and reliable way of diagnosing dementia we found uh, 16 million pounds would increase those from 2,000 a year only 2,000 a year currently being done to 20,000 so a thousand percent increase again we need far more than 20,000 tests 100 percent, but this is just the first start we're asking for and anyway I published this letter and my plan was to carry this during the final three marathons in the Amazon the Arctic and the Antarctic we're all which were all in sort of a two or three month period at the end of the year and carry these with me and, and hopefully by taking these these remote places like a video from the amazon holding like a, a broken piece of paper and then in the arctic and the antarctic would hopefully get the attention of 10 downing street and the prime minister and very fortunately we did and we we did put a petition out as well and I think we needed 10,000 signatures but we, d- we didn't even get that truthfully but I think through the power of social media you know credit to social media and credit to the press and the incredible journalists who, who got behind the project too and supported and helped share this story we got an invite from 10 Downing Street and the Prime Minister's team and office inviting us in January to go and deliver a letter and that's what we did. So it was a special moment. That was the closure of the project, finishing Antarctica. There was no emotion. There was no feeling. There was there was no pride. You know, some people were on, you know, in tears on the floor, crying or in pain, all these different things. But I didn't feel anything when I crossed that finish line because I knew I had to come home and deliver my letter. And when I knocked on number 10, I knocked three times and it was like the death of the project. It was like something I'd. Just loved and cared about and taken so much pride in for 14 months it was just all over in just like that and it had to happen because you know we must move forward we must keep going and we must keep raising you know the challenges and the purpose but yeah it was incredible and we're now waiting to hear you know that was just over a month ago so we're waiting now to hear the prime minister's decision and again it may take months hopefully it'll be sooner and and fingers crossed you know god willing we can get their approval
0: yeah it'd be amazing if you could get their approval um so that's as you said you sort of laid that project to rest when you you get handed that letter over so it's been a month now and you know in 2022 you were doing something every two months so what's
1: what's next for you this year well my big dream this year is to deliver a greater adventure with greater impact And I'm at the moment I'm working on two bigger challenges this year. I can't say what they are just yet because uh, you said this is going out in just over a week, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I can't ask just before, but I can say the next thing is going to be swimming. So I've done two small swims so far in my career and I, I, I love them. They were so tough. They put more fear into me maybe than any other challenge I've done, but I did love them in many ways. There was so much freedom with swimming. I, I did the health spawn, uh, in 2022 from europe to asia one of the busiest shipping lanes then last year i I did the alcatraz so very two very small swims compared to what others are out there are doing but i want to now focus a little bit more on that and i'm working on doing like a global swimming challenge very soon Hmm. so
0: yeah in terms of we'll not say what it is but in terms of distance in comparison to you know hellspot which was four and a half kilometers right and alcatraz i can't remember how long that is that's
1: even less. I think it's a one and a half miles. It's very short. Okay. So
0: in terms of distance, comparative to them, what are we talking? Like double,
1: triple? Those those were nothing compared to what's coming up. All right. I'm excited for this. Yeah. I'm this excited is, for this. This is taking all the... Yeah, there was some great, sure, uh, things that went well during the, the Seven Continents running project, but there was lots of, you know, learnings, should we say, on my side of things, you know, that didn't go well. And that's okay because you know I'm 24 and this was my biggest project to start in this career and and I learned a lot and it's now time to put those learnings into a swimming project to have an even greater impact and of course there's going to be things that don't go well there either and that's fine I don't I don't strive for perfectionism either but it's time just to keep improving keep growing and uh, that's the plan and I think swimming is going to be the way to do that because I think running is quite saturated. And I think that's okay. But I think in terms of the charity impact and behind it, I think swimming might be a good angle. And I think there's quite a nice tie between British exploration and venture with swimming. It's uh, it's quite special. Yeah.
0: Well, you, what you say there about running being saturated is it's quite interesting because it really is right now in terms of you see the people at the top end who are doing the most extreme yeah. End of it in the world, like hardest skiers at Cork you know, running, running across Africa, and it's amazing what he's doing. But then, now it's almost become like, if you run a marathon, it's nothing. It, like in a way, like if you just run one marathon, yeah. people exactly. are like, "Oh well, what's that?" Like when actually, it's a fucking massive thing. It's 100%. huge, and. It, yeah, it's, and it's whereas swimming, not really a lot of people. Like Lewis Pugh, obviously he's done a fair bit. Ross mm. Edgley, swimming around the UK. There's a lot of really good athletes out there in, within swimming, but mm. they just don't seem to get the... Well, Ross obviously did. Lewis, I feel like he doesn't get as much in terms of media coverage in, uh, compared to what he should. But yeah, there's not a, as much of like a media push for that as there is like the running and it's quite weird because i'd say it's probably it's harder because it's so fear inducing mm. and the conditions you've got to deal with mm-hmm. in the water can be you know there could be death
1: involved with some of them oh swimming you, you can't mess around with it. And you're right i mean lewis pew yeah he deserves 10 times what the recognition he's had he's, he's an incredible incredible guy but you know when i think back to the running project There were lots of tough moments. You know, I got caught in a rainstorm in the rainforest. I got chased by wild dogs in the outback and the the desert. And and that was really tough. But if you talk about the dangers with swimming, if it's ocean swimming, you talk about things that could go wrong. You know, we're at a totally different level. And that's why, you know, I think it was good to do the running project first because it taught me a lot about safety and how to work with support crews. And I'm going to carry that into this next project. But it's... uh, Yeah, I think I think it's down to social media in many ways, why running has become saturated. It's almost now trendy to run, which is a great thing. And as we spoke about, it's encouraging people to get out and be active. That's a wonderful thing. And that no doubt will have really good impacts for for disease and illnesses for for our generation going forward, where hopefully people are much healthier. I really hope so. But in terms of what I want to do, nothing I want to do is, is trendy. You know, my goal is mm-hmm. to pioneer big adventures and, and lead a career, hopefully as an explorer. I don't want to be a trendy runner; it's, it's not my dream. So for mm-hmm. me, it's time to move away from that. Not forever. I'll, I'll definitely come back to. it. I have some other running ideas and plans, maybe for one day. But for right now, I want to move across to a, to a different sport.
0: Yeah. Have you ever read uh, Ross Edgley's The World Fittest Sport, Bo- World fi- world's fittest
1: book? If I can get that out. Or was that his first one? I've read his first one, but not yeah. the second one. Okay. Yeah, yep. the
0: first, so the first one where he goes through the, like, he t- sort of takes you through the journey of his, like, trip around the UK. And some of the stuff within that, where, like, you know, the salt tongue, where his tongue just starts falling apart. Yeah. Like, he's he's in the middle of swimming and just throws up on himself because he licked, like, you know, because of obviously ingesting so much salt water. And it's incredible that, still he could manage to achieve what he did with all those issues that were going on surround like 12 hours on 12 hours off for 150 odd days is ridiculous achievement
1: yeah it's incredible and you know in those tough times as well i do think about other people sometimes who have done those kind of things because sometimes it puts you into perspective and you realize actually you know i'm a million miles away from what they're going through what he did was utterly amazing that is probably one of the greatest, you know, endurance and adventure feats ever. And same for Lewis Pugh, what he's done in the cold waters, you know, swimming in the North Pole, or up Everest. He's probably, you know, some of the greatest adventure feats. And they don't get enough recognition. And maybe they will one day when people realize actually how tough this stuff is. But, mm. yeah, you're, you're right. It's uh, it's pretty incredible what some people are doing. And I think Alex, who we spoke about as well, he's definitely one to watch. Because I think he's going to go on to be one of these people. I really do think yeah. that. I'm
0: Firmly of the same belief, <laughs> yeah. having met him and spent time with him, I am just com- I'm convinced he's like he's so driven for for the, he like that end goal is the only thing in sight for him, and the you know he works twelve hour days in a mine, works nights, you know he then goes out and does his runs around a one kilometer loop, and like the, he's got access to, and he's just I've ne- I don't think I've ever seen someone so driven for for something when
1: they've got so much else going on as well yeah no he he, yeah yeah absolutely there's there's lots of people i think from from our generation who who are going to go on and and lead this way because you know i I often say i want to be one of these people but you know i can't there can't be one person there has to be many this is a team team effort and yeah, I think there's there's lots of exciting people to watch, but also big credit to yourself because you know, you're the one who's helping share these stories. Sometimes I think sharing the stories and the storytelling is 10 times harder than actually doing the challenges themselves. And storytelling is something I'm still not mastered. It's something I'm still getting used to, but it, and it's something I struggle with because it, it takes time and you have to work on it. And there's something beautiful about these adventures where they can be... Given to anyone in the world, you know, someone doesn't need to go and run in the desert or climb Mont Blanc or swim across the Alcatraz to to take home the lessons that I learnt. You know, if I can give that to them, you know, it's almost like a shortcut to that lesson. And maybe sometimes there's an argument we need to learn our lessons and we need to go through ourselves. But if they can take those lessons and put that into their life and go through the hardships that they will face, you know, we all face hardships in different times in very different ways. But if they can take those and uh, they can do something amazing with them, then, you know, how incredible is that? That not only can we lead lives where we, you know, find purpose and we hopefully help ourselves and the friends and our family, but if we can help a stranger or someone else, that's just awesome. Mm. And someone like yeah. Ross, actually, Lewis Pugh, no doubt they've helped far more than they'll ever realize. Mm.
0: Yeah, this is it. And, this, and with you as well, like the money you've raised, like you've raised over 40,000 pounds, to date right and like that's an incredible amount of money to raise and obviously as time goes on and the more things you do the more traction your things get the more money you're going to raise and I can imagine within the next 10 years it's, that's going to be a million or more and like it's incredible to see what you're doing and to do it so selflessly as well it's like next level stuff mate.
1: Thank you, thank you very much really appreciate it.
0: But yeah I have one final question which I ask all my guests and okay. it's yeah. It's a deep one that I always like to get into with people. So I like to start hard and end very deep. And it's how would you like to be remembered?
1: Oh, how would I like to be remembered? I would like... Well, how sweet would that just be remembered in the first place? That would be quite nice. (laughs) I would like to be remembered as someone who pioneered adventures, some of the greatest adventures, hopefully told some of the greatest stories and maybe had the greatest impact and i don't mean greatest compared to others i don't mean greater than anyone else i just mean the greatest that i could do so that's all i care about and i think another word i hope to leave behind and maybe somewhere will be attached on my story when i leave this world will be the word hope that maybe i was able to not only carry hope myself but also give hope to others for for this fight against dementia and to find a cure and and I hope maybe we can do that in my lifetime and uh, I will keep fighting for that. But that's the word I hope to leave behind too. Amazing. It's very inspiring what you do. And just let
0: everyone know where they can find you, where they can, mm. you know, support the charities you work with, support you as well.
1: Oh, that's amazing. So Louis Alexander Explorer on Instagram and TikTok. I've also got yeah, the the YouTube and the LinkedIn and things like that. But yeah, I really appreciate your support. Yeah, this is, as I said, this is just the start of my career. And it's, it's funny answering these these questions because like you said, that's a really tough question, right? And I'm really keen to know your answer too to that. But that's a tough question because I, when I answer that question, I think like that's, I'm just at the beginning, you know, mm. I, I hope one day to also to know that answer because the truth is I don't really know the answer. That's the answer I think I know now, but I'm sure in five years, 10 years, that will change. And actually I hope it does because I want to grow up. I want to become the man I want to be, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still young. I'm still growing up. And that's what i think about as well in many ways with that so yeah yeah really appreciate it what what's your answer if you don't want me asking or are you waiting for a certain episode to share that one so so i'll tell you off air because so i i've
0: got i've got something coming up this year that i want to do and i want to do a bit of a promo with it and use that in it so i'll tell you off air Let's yeah, do thanks for
1: coming on mate thank you thank you
0: hope you enjoyed that episode with louis uh really appreciate him coming on it was such such a great conversation that we had um such a great guy and you know what he's doing is for such an amazing course cause so remember to go follow and support louis where you can and also remember to like subscribe share the podcast review it on apple and spotify um and i will see you next week for another video